0: Man, oh man, do we have an episode for you today. I am Drake. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. We are the podcast that makes science accessible, enjoyable, and engaging to listen to. As you may or may not know, every episode we have a new researcher come in to talk about their expertise, and today we have quite the expert, Dr. Eric Helms, co-host of Iron Culture and expert in competitive bodybuilding and powerlifting research. We talked about everything physical fitness today so even if you're not competing for the next competitive bodybuilding show or you're not powerlifting at the olympics there's a ton of research and conversation today that you're going to really enjoy we talked about the history of how traditional strength sports came to be and how competitive bodybuilding grew out of those traditional strength sports through circus acts and expos Eric talks about why it's important to consume fats and carbs alongside protein. Uh, we always hear about why people consume protein and the you know how bodybuilders and powerlifters are always obsessed about protein, but what about carbs and fats? Uh, we talk about that and what those really do for you as an athlete or as someone just trying to improve your overall health. Like I said, you don't have to be a powerlifter or a bodybuilder to really enjoy this episode. We talk about how the work that Eric does on powerlifting and bodybuilding can inform everyday people on how do they work out and how they train. So if you're interested in reducing a little bit of belly fat uh, or, you know, you're just trying to be a little bit healthier, look a little sexier, uh, there's lots that you can learn from this episode when it comes to training and eating and all of these things. If you are a fan of Iron Culture, you may very well know that Eric is well-versed in the social media physical fitness mess that there is right now. Uh, and he talks about some of the issues that he sees with some of these physical fitness influencers and how he's introduced research and science into the work that he does as a physical fitness influencer. Uh, and we also talk what an obtainable body type is, something that we really don't think about too often. But we're we're exposed to so many different photoshopped and unattainable goals uh, that it seems like everybody's got some form of body dysmorphia when you're just going scrolling through Instagram. So we talk a little bit about what's obtainable, what should we be reaching for, and what are what should our goals be. Uh, all of these things and more in this episode. You're going to love it. If you've never listened to us before, please do check out our previous catalog. We have tons of researchers on subjects ranging from how to create a foolproof alibi with Dr. uh the science of bullshit with Dr. John Petricelli. We talk about accessing mental health care with Sir Graham Thornecroft or believing conspiracy theories with Mikey Biddleston and Ricky Green. We cover pretty much anything that you're interested in when it comes to psychology and the way that we interact with others. So please do check out our other episodes. If you like this episode, please do follow us on Instagram or Twitter at BrainBuzzPod. I appreciate any new followers that we get. And please do reach out to me. Let me know that you're enjoying the show uh, and that you're enjoying the content we're putting out there because I really do love hearing from you guys. All right, that's enough for me. Enjoy the episode. welcome back to another episode of brain buzz podcast i am your host drake and today we have eric dr eric helms on he is a research fellow from for aut at the sports performance research institute in new zealand he holds a master's in exercise science and another in sports nutrition as well as a phd in strength and conditioning he's additionally a natural bodybuilder and strength athlete a coach author educator and co-host of the podcast iron culture eric you have a ton of things going on. You're very well educated. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks so much for coming.
1: Well, I am uh, honored to be on. And if you consider me well educated by being hyper specialized in one narrow field, then I'll take it. So
0: (laughs) yeah, I, I mean, we're all kind of in that niche whenever it comes to doing psychology and research in general. So I mean, like, Yes, I do consider you very well educated. And you're informing a lot of people through your podcast, which I really like, with a scientific and empirical grounding, which I I really do appreciate. Well,
1: thank you. I think it's uh it's 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 something I love doing and I am just overjoyed that there's enough people who, who also like me being obsessed about something. So <laughs> absolutely. So
0: so to start off, Eric, I got some very like Pressing questions, more or less. There's a lot of terminology you guys throw around on Iron Culture and in the lifting community itself. Is there a hierarchy to the lexicon of what physical fitness is? Is ripped better than shredded? Is yoked better than yucky? This is a new term that I've heard from you guys. (laughs) Never heard yucky before, but where does it fall Mm -hmm. in the hierarchy?
1: That's a good question. So uh, I would say yucky is a more uh, newer term that's come out only in the last decade. Uh, Yoked has been around for a while and um I, I do wonder if being yoked is more popular in the the higher fat lower carb groups um <laughs> that was a joke um but uh but yeah yucky in general is kind of this gestalt overall like you've got good definition you're jacked and, and it's just yucky like it's like like it's it's, it's a good thing and, and it, it's not specific to being lean it's not specific to being muscular it's just kind of the overall aestheticness is quite good um yoked is definitely something of just he or she or they are, are, are pretty, pretty muscular. Like you act. Um, and you, you, that, that you could be yoked whether or not you were lean at the moment, um, ripped and shredded are, I would argue are actually on a hierarchy. So when someone is shredded, that's something, um, that you would typically like to to be truly shredded. We're talking like stage condition for a physique competitor. Um, so muscle groups that you didn't know had striations in them, you're aware of it. Uh, like like what's called walnut butt Um, most people when they think of butts they think of a smooth surface but when you get really 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 lean they actually get striations laterally across it and and when you flex your butt under uh, it kind of looks like a walnut which is really unattractive but is awesome if you like flexing in a speedo so ripped is probably like a downgrade from there ripped would be like your your magazine like muscle model type person um Yeah. Shredded is like, it takes true dedication and borderline eating disorders. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so is shredded at the top, like peak, is that the term that like, if someone is show ready, like you're at a show is the, is the best person, the most shredded, is that the terminology you would use?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of them. Like, like, bro, you are shredded, you know? Um, (laughs) like, like it must be uncomfortable to sit in chairs. You must be hungry type of thing. Um, there's also a few others that I would use when someone is just incredibly lean, like diced, uh, is another one. Yeah. Like that, that, that could be seen on equal footing to shredded. Right.
0: Yeah. So, so these are ones that like, you probably wouldn't want to be cuddling this person if they were yoked or sorry, shredded or diced. That's kind of like a very metal, metallic kind of feel to their body. They're very strong.
1: They look hard hard. and they actually are. Yeah. Yeah. There's not like, I legitimately, when I'm in stage shape, I cannot sit down on a hard surface for too long because it is actually (laughs) uncomfortable. Um, Wow. Which is uh, just goes to show you the pathology that's involved in doing what I do. It's great.
0: Yeah, yeah so let's get let's get into that area because i think you know for a lot of people it's kind of foreign it, it, and you say niche your research is niche i mean i agree it is niche but everybody's research can be niche too like i, I look at re- relationships and sexuality and, and people mm-hmm. consider that to be niche even though everybody does it right yeah. uh but your 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 specific niche is with power lifters and bodybuilders right so so tell us a little bit about what a bo- what it takes to be a bodybuilder and a power lifter and what the differences are
1: yeah, I think a lot of people are not even necessarily familiar with like weightlifting, powerlifting, uh, bodybuilding, strongman or strongwoman. Um, strength sport is is pretty niche, like, like you said. Um, like a lot of people do exercise. A lot of people do care about what they look like. But when it goes to a competitive extent, it is kind of a, kind of a weird thing. I think yeah. most people know like, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like before he was an actor, he competed in bodybuilding. Like they have images in their head and there's, you know, some pictures of him on gym walls. Where he's basically wearing, you know, a speedo, and he's very lean and probably the biggest you've seen him, even compared to his movies, and he's flexing. Um, so competitive bodybuilding actually uh, developed as a, I'll say sport, but it's really kind of like a a muscle pageant, if you will. Um, uh, and the first competitions happen in literally the late eighteen hundreds, like eighteen nineties, and the first large competitions happen in the early nineteen hundreds. And at the time they started as a adjunct to strength sport. So the traditional strength sports grew out of the vaudeville era of strongman competition. So vaudeville, it had this entertainment aspect, which is still mm-hmm. carried on to strength sport today, where lifting weights was so novel uh, and gymnasiums were, were so rare that it was a circus performing act to lift a heavy weight over your head. So you think of like the traditional, like kind of Tarzan style suit, a uh, mm-hmm. big handlebar mustache, You know, globe-based barbell over your head, that came from that 1800s, even sometimes in the the 1700s, early 1900s through the 1910s era, where lifting weights was primarily this expedition that you'd have at these kind of expos or or, or circus acts. Um, And that eventually, and and there was always a competitive aspect, like you'd have strong men and women challenging one another. Um, And then eventually that got organized in the early 1900s. And what we had emerge, I want to say in the 1920s, was when Olympic weightlifting first got into the Olympics and it started as actually a event in track and field which would change each year. And they had stuff very right. different to what you see today. And then I think in 1924 was when it officially became its own sport, Olympic weightlifting. Um, and for a long time, it was the snatch, the clean and jerk and the clean and press. So these are all overhead movements, which kind of had their roots from that vaudeville era. Um, and they were dumbbells and barbells for a while, but eventually they got codified for a solid, like three decades as the barbell snatch, which is one solid clean movement overhead, the clean and jerk where you get it to your shoulders, and then you do a, a violent put press underneath and the clean and press, which is same thing to the shoulders. And then a strict press overhead, which is much more of a slow strength-based movement in the forties, fifties, sixties, the quote unquote odd lifts started to emerge, uh, the odd lifts Were basically all the other movements that weren't those that weightlifters used to supplement the clean and jerk. And some people were like, you know, I don't really want to do the Olympic lifts, I want to actually just do odd lift competitions. And that Mm -hmm. eventually became powerlifting. uh, And that eventually then siloed itself into the squat, the bench press and the deadlift. Although there was a time period where the curl was involved. And there were a few other different variations of that. So kind of the big three iron sports were bodybuilding, weightlifting and powerlifting, and strongman is almost this kind of recall back to those old era where we have much more variety and things change. Um, so anyway, that, 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 that is important to answer the question of what bodybuilding is. Yeah. Bodybuilding was always attached. It typically happened the day after a strength competition. And it would be basically uh, the competitors showing their muscularity. And there was this union between function and form in the early days of uh, the what was called the physical culture at the time. It was not even really called bodybuilding at, at that point. And it wasn't until the 1900s and then the 1930s, 20s, and 40s where it really became its own sport. And there was a movement within the US uh, led by some someone you might recognize, Joe Weider as um, a name that is a guy who uh, you know really kind of blew up bodybuilding through Arnold Schwarzenegger, although there were folks before that, like for Steve Reeves mm-hmm. and John Grimmick popularized it, although Grimmick was was not a, a weeder man. But anyway, for up till like the right, right around World War II, bodybuilding was always kind of second fiddle to strength sport. And it was the strength athletes showing the muscularity they'd built to be strong. And then there was a movement in the, in, in the post-World War II era that caught fire in the sixties to make bodybuilding its own sport and that's when um, it actually happened, and you had people's training specifically for developing their musculature without necessarily any specific movements they're trying to get strong on. Fast forward it now, today we've got you know it's 2021, and those are still the big three iron sports, but strongman's come back. Crossfit's kind of this weird cousin, and <laughs> and you know and and you've got a whole lot of people interested in, uh, in 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 looking the way that bodybuilders do, or at least a small fraction of that because of folks like. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Steve Reeves popularizing it and uh, getting into the mainstream in Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And, and so, strongmen, or sorry, powerlifters and bodybuilders
1: now, today, they look very different, right? It depends. You know, like, so powerlifting has changed over time as well. Like, if we were gonna talk like the 1990s and 2000 era, the most popular powerlifters were super heavyweight males. So they had an unlimited body weight. And they were just doing anything they could to be as strong as possible. So you had a lot of guys who were pretty high in body fat uh, to help them carry more muscular bulk. Um, And because they were the strongest, and that was kind of the focus, and uh, there was a little less, I'm not going to say powerlifting was exclusive by any means. I think it's always a really cool, inclusive strength community in my experience. But it was less representative of, of, of a larger population. In the last decade, though, powerlifting has exploded across other um, types of bodies, I, I would say. In mm-hmm. most countries now in the West, somewhere around 40% of competitors are now women, and we have far more representation across weight classes. So for example, the the strongest powerlifter right now, um, if you were to do like a relative strength equation, and there's some of these coefficients that exist to compare across weight classes, is in the 74 kilo weight class, and his name is Taylor Atwood, and he walks mm-hmm. around probably around nine, 10% body fat. So he does look like a bodybuilder. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when you look at some of the, the weight classes that are not unlimited, especially when you get into kind of like the middle weight down. So we're talking about women who are in the, the 60 kilo range or 50 kilo range, they're generally pretty lean or just very, very short. Um, <laughs> uh, and the same thing is true. Once you get it right around to like the 83 kilo class for, for men and under. So for American lifters, uh, American listeners, excuse me, we're talking about once you're in like the, the 140 range or lower in terms of pounds for women and right around under 200 pounds for, for men, uh, you start to see a lot leaner physiques that look a little more reminiscent of bodybuilders.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so the goal of bodybuilding then is obviously different in the sense that it's
1: more of an aesthetics.
0: You're being judged on your the way that you look, right? And the, and the muscle definition and the striations, as you said. 100%. What what is the training difference? Because there, obviously, there's going to be a training difference when you're when you're looking to lift as heavy as possible versus look as good as possible. Some might think that there'd be the exact same kind of training, right? The heavier you lift, the
1: stronger you you are, and the bigger your muscles. But is it mm. the, is that the case? Yeah, that's a great question, and this is something where we can actually I, I can take my my amateur historian hat off and, and start putting <laughs> on my my sports scientist hat. Um, this is actually something that has taken. The intervention of science, to to kind of clarify, because there is a lot of what we would call covariance between strength and hypertrophy. Um, When you look at cross-sectional data, um, the biggest predictor, if you were just to grab someone off the street and chuck them on like an isokinetic dynamometer or a mid-thigh pole on a force plate, some way of measuring their force output, um, the, the largest correlation, of uh, their anthropometry, the measurement of their body and the measurement of their force output is cross-sectional area of the relevant muscles for the movement that you're testing. So like if I chuck you on a, an isometric, meaning there's no movement around the joint, so it's a very low skill movement, uh, knee extension, and you're just pushing against the, like a load cell. Uh, and we're trying to see how much torque you're generating with your knee extensors, which are your quadriceps, the front of your thigh the size of those muscles in the front of your thigh explains, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the variance of, you know, inter-individual force output. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising to me that if you go back to the 40s, for example, in the 50s, when you had uh, Bob Hoffman, the, the kind of the godfather of weightlifting in uh, the, the, the U.S. and the split from Joe and Ben Weider, who were these guys who came from Canada and they were promoting bodybuilding for its own sake, you had different training styles. Uh, mm-hmm. The Hoffman crew were basically weightlifters who also had muscularity. And they had a very different training style than the leaders who started to do more specific isolation movements, higher repetition ranges. Um, And now what we've learned is that, yeah, if you do the best strength training program, you will inevitably get big. But the best strength training program does not necessarily mean it's also the best hypertrophy or muscle growth program. So um, essentially in exercise science, we have a concept called uh, the principle of specificity, and there's a, it's called the said principle. S A I D, and it's specific adaptations to impose demands. So to get really good at lifting heavy things, you do have to lift heavy things. There's really no way around that, and you will yeah. see no disagreement in the strength community. No one's like, you know, I, I actually think if you lift a hundred pounds every day, that when you compete, five hundred, yeah. no problem. That's not a thing, <laughs> right? However, um, because hypertrophy is not a quote-unquote performance adaptation, it's a physiological change that has a relationship with other uh, performance uh, adaptations, there is ambiguity there. And what we've had to figure out through, uh, through empirical evidence is that there is some relationship between how heavy you're lifting, but it has much more to do with the effort level that you're putting forth in a set. So, for example, you might be able to get Uh, and I don't mean this offensively. So like if you and I were were bench pressing and we both had 10 reps and and we wanted to pick a load that produced the greatest hypertrophy stimulus for us, I would probably be lifting a heavier load than you if I had to guess, right? And if I took your load, I would do the 10 reps and I would have done them. It would have been the same total mechanical work. However, the effort level it would require from me would be far less than what would be necessary to actually stimulate and produce an adaptation in my muscle fibers to grow. So the weight on the bar is not necessarily that important relative to anyone except you when it comes to hypertrophy. So what that essentially means is that at the end of a set, you need to start seeing the bar speed slow down. The person should be struggling a little bit. Uh, and at that point, you know that some fatigue has been induced and fatigue at the, the micro level is occurring because the different muscle fibers have produced sufficient force uh, to experience mechanical tension to start seeing fatigue. So they're producing less force, hence the bar speed slowing down. And that is the stimulus that your, your, your body goes, oh, he's trying to do more work than what we're capable of. And you start to see muscle fiber growth. So. The strength adaptations have a huge neuromuscular and skill component, coactivation, all kinds of stuff, while hypertrophy is kind of just like the local uh, change in muscle fiber. So it, it seems more attached to two things, effort and then the total volume of work. So if you do a whole lot whole lot of weightlifting, um, then it, it requires more. That fatigue tends to accumulate, uh, and it's kind of like the area under the curve of the total force produced. Um, and some observations we see in, in the trenches is that Like I said, all strength athletes, they train heavy. There's really no way around that. Um, They might train heavier than one another, but from an outsider's perspective, everybody's lifting heavy. Um, When you look at bodybuilders, um, you tend to see a lot more disparity in their training, Um, but you see various high and low volume approaches in strength athletes, but they all lift heavy. And that matches what we have in the data, that volume is a smaller player in terms of what stimulates strength than the actual load on the bar, that specificity again. However. In the in the realm of bodybuilding, you tend to see two dominant camps. There's the folks that m- control their effort, so it's still reasonably high effort, but they tend to do more volume. And there's groups that tend to do a little less volume, but they always take their their sets really close to uh, failure, is what it's known as, so the point when you can no longer do another rep, or you actually miss a rep and need a spot from a uh, from a training partner. So you can make each unit of volume more stimulative. Uh, or you can do more volume and control the stimulus so that you can actually accomplish it without burning out and injury. And they tend to have these dogmatic camps and fights as, as all communities do anytime they they don't mm-hmm. perfectly agree because they're humans. So Yeah, we can't live without that. <laughs> no, no, that would be too uh, easy.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I mean that that makes sense. And I've definitely heard of, you know, the idea of, you know, going for failure, or going for reps. The for me, I'm kind of curious uh, how the nutrition mm differs in these two camps, because I'm sure they, they, they're very different. Um, but is there consistency? Let's just talk about bodybuilding as, as, yep. as the main one here, then, Eric, what does nutrition look like? Because, you know, you jokingly said, you know, there, it can be problematic at the beginning where, you know, you get to a point where you're probably not eating enough, or you're doing something to your body that's pretty extreme as an athlete, as athletes tend to do. What does nutrition, alongside this heavy dose of exercise, look like for someone that's preparing for a competition?
1: Yeah, you, you, uh, there's actually much less heterogeneity in the diets that are out there in competitive bodybuilding than when you compare it to the broad nutrition space. Um, you know, you, you mentioned how you study sexuality, and everyone does this, but I'm a niche researcher. Everyone eats, so when you look at the nutrition sphere, everyone is comfortable to say they're an expert, and you can literally find people saying that something is poison and is the worst thing for society and the cause of every modern illness and obesity epidemic. And someone else saying that it is the cure to it just by swiping once, you know, yeah. if, if you go in the nutrition space. Um, and as much as I respect everyone's right to have an opinion, they both can't be true. Uh, and most of the time they're both wrong because they're far too hyperbolic. And the beauty of competitive bodybuilding is that because you're throwing in a very difficult, challenging thing of maintaining a lot of muscle mass, building it proportionately, and then having to get incredibly lean. Um, you know, for those who are not at all familiar with bodybuilding, you hear building, and you think it's all about eating more and lifting weights and trying to get bigger and bigger. But a competitive bodybuilder typically is losing 10 to 15% of their body mass from the off season to the point they get on stage. So, um, like if That's you a massive see amount, <laughs> it is. So for example, you might see like a, a muscular dude who lifts weights in the gym and for him to get on, like for me, like I walk around around like 210 or mm-hmm. 94, 95 kilos. I compete on stage at 180 um, and I'm six foot. So when you look at me and I tell you, I need to lose 30 pounds plus, you think that's unhealthy. It mm-hmm. is. <laughs> so, um, and, and you see a lot of, uh, of, of and, there, and there's a whole thing that goes into it. But the beauty of, of having this very high, difficult performance standard to achieve is that you can't conflict with reality, you know, like when you're just kind of eating on a day-to-day basis and you, you can believe that sugar is poison. You don't eat sugar. It doesn't matter. You know uh, you can believe that the dairy is good or bad. You cut it out of your diet. That's all right. You eat something else. But if the goal is okay, I need to, as a male, get down to about five, 6% body fat, or as a woman, you know, nine or 10% body fat. If you don't hit on the key variables that actually re- result in massive amounts of fat loss and pushing your body far past its extremes and its comfort level, You just don't get there. So one thing that you will see that's ubiquitous in all bodybuilding diets is that they induce an energy deficit. Um, So however you wanna do it, you're gonna have to be in a sustained energy deficit, eating less calories than you need to maintain your mass so that you drop body fat over time. Um, You will also see debates around quote unquote like higher or lower protein intakes, but to an outsider, it's debates upon how high should your high protein diet be? Like there's some people who are like, I'm on the low end, I eat, you know, 0.8 grams per pound. That's still a lot, you know, (laughs) or you have people who are like, I eat, you know, a a gram and a half per pound. Uh, And so it's, everyone is on a high protein diet. Everyone is on a calorie restricted diet. Um, And generally you don't see the majority of, of uh, bodybuilders going on very low carb diets you will see kind of more of an like an individualized carbon tick. There are some people who take a lower carb approach, but you don't typically see like zero carb keto diets that are that popular. There are their niches, but if you look at the broad bell curve, it's arguments around like low, moderate, moderate, or as much as I can have while still being in a calorie deficit. And those are, mm-hmm. you know, camps or are, are, they have a lot more proximity than you see in the general nutrition space.
0: Yeah. And so, so what is the fascination and fixation on protein? Because anybody from an outside perspective knows that bodybuilders or people that are into fitness need protein. And it's always a conversation of how much protein do I need to get? How many protein shakes do I need to drink and things like that? So what is it that protein does for an athlete to either burn that fat or get them down to that leanness? Uh, and and how, does, how do carbs also supplement that? Because I, I am aware at least uh as a novice that you do need carbs for to help with energy levels but that's my that's my base knowledge so what are these what about fats and so like what are those kind of macronutrients and why are they so so more
1: important than others exactly that's that's, those are great questions so the the actual at a slightly higher level than micro the the broad process of building muscle is actually the same process as maintaining muscle while you're dieting which is a harder thing to do because you're you're on less energy right um when, when you take the, the average person and you put them on an energy restricted diet in a, for a prolonged period and they don't lift weights, they'll lose about a 60, 40% breakdown of fat mass and lean mass. Um, from, 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 a, from a survival perspective, if I was to, I, I had my history hat on, then I had my sports science hat, and now I'm gonna go <laughs> you know uh, anthropological hat on. From a, um, a, a survival standpoint, looking across the, the time span that mammals have been around, if there's no food around, And if you're in this prolonged calorie deficit, it's not helpful for this animal to carry around an excessive amount of lean body mass, right? It's not helping them hunt right now. There's clearly no food. You just need to to not die of starvation. So we're going to get rid of those biceps. We don't really need them right now kind of thing. So that's resistance training, obviously the biggest tool we have to maintain muscle mass. But the way that resistance training works is if I go to the gym um, and I lift weights, it sensitizes the muscle I just trained to increasing the amount of protein it's responsive to, to lay down new proteins. So essentially what we have is what's called net protein balance. And it is a very simple equation of muscle protein breakdown plus muscle protein synthesis equals net protein balance. And if that's a positive number, that means we're building muscle proteins. And on a day-to-day basis, those things equal out. If you were to take up hiking, or if you were to uh, get really, really sedentary, you would start to see that equation tip one way or the other, And you'd start to lose or gain a small amount of lean body mass. But if you very purposefully go, right, I'm going to do a bodybuilding program. I'm going to lift weights to grow. Now you have these many multiple overlapping periods, say 24, 48 hours after each time you lift, or all the muscle groups you train on that day are going to be more responsive to the protein you consume than normal. And you can eat a low protein diet and grow muscle, but we have good data now at this stage in in 2021 to see that higher protein diets, right around the point when you're consuming around 0.7 grams per pound, uh, and, and, and with diminishing returns after that point, as you go up and then a plateau, uh, pretty, pretty early, we start to see that higher protein diets just basically support that rate of hypertrophy a little faster. So if someone is not consuming sufficient protein and lifting weights, of course they will grow, but the person, let's take their twin in another place. They're consuming twice as much protein. They're probably going to get a little bit bigger over time. Interesting thing though, is that, so contest prep, like I said, the goal is to, to get in the calorie deficit, lose 10%, 15% of your body mass, depending on where you start. The Eric, how
0: fast, how fast is that happening? What, what, is a, mm. what is a prep? Like, how long
1: is a prep usually? Great question. And that has actually changed over time. Um, okay. It used to be very short-term periods when there was a different standard of leanness. Like if you looked at um, Arnold when he was on stage, he did not have the walnut butt. Um, and he was actually leaner than, than than the folks from, say, the 40s, uh, where they, they liked more of kind of... A, and, and this is probably because the sport was tied to strength sport. It's very difficult to perform when you are shredded and not eating, um, so once bodybuilding split from strength sport and they became independent, the leanness standard has just kind of steadily gone up, and it's even changed in modern times. So I remember the first show I did, there was only one or two people in the whole competition who had fully striated glutes. Now, if you go to a, even an amateur show at a high level, even on the drug-free side, the the the, the non-enhanced, as we like to say, uh, you'll see top three, top five, all about as lean as you can you can be. And it really does come down to then, okay, who has better proportions, more muscularity. But there was a time in natural bodybuilding where if you were someone who could figure out how to get that lean and you just weren't small, you had a good shot at turning professional. You wouldn't be competitive at the professional level, but it it makes you stand out so much. Every muscle group becomes so much more pronounced that it's kind of like if if you're not lean enough in a bodybuilding show, even if you've got a really muscular physique, it's kind of like showing up to a baseball game without a mitt. Like you, you just kind of have to reach a certain standard or you really just don't look the part, you know, all that muscularity is just not quite as defined. So anyway, um, the time frame has, it's also increased over time because it just takes longer to lose more body fat. Um, and there are delineations between how it occurs on the enhanced side and the natural side. Um, the 12 to 16 week diet was very popular for a very long time. It still is in some circles that also tends to be how long, uh, steroid cycles used to be anabolic steroids. Right. Okay. Um, So, you know, people would take anabolic steroids, run it and and do like a crash diet, high protein, not much else like broccoli and chicken, uh, and take gear. Uh, it's just a slang term for, for anabolics and get really lean in the process. Um, on the natural side, obviously that doesn't work. Um, at least not nearly as effectively because there's, there's, there's nothing there. So you, we have a number of tools at our disposal to minimize muscle loss, resistance training, high protein diets, but. Probably more important than the more important than the protein content of the diet is making sure that you're not in a large calorie deficit. So uh, you'll see it's not uncommon at all to take six months to get into shape in the, the natural side, um, and that's a pretty okay. common like wow kind of middle months. of the bell curve. Yep, um, and that's and that's under eating each day at a caloric
0: deficit here. So so when you're doing that, Eric, you said you lose around you can lose around ten to fifteen percent of your body mass. How many how, at what rate do you want to be losing? Um, right. but like percentages, right?
1: Yeah, it's typically like 0. 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week, um, and you'll see it closer to that 1%. Uh, you know, of the person's body weight per week in the first half of that six-month phase, and then it slows right. down. So, yeah, it's, you don't want to lose that muscle mass. Well, like you said, you don't want to lose exactly. the lean muscle while, while also reducing
0: the fat, right? Yeah, you've got
1: to be able to train, right? If training is the biggest stimulus we have, uh, we know that an underfueled athlete is, is a poor performing athlete. And while bodybuilding isn't a performance sport, you're seeing the results of whether or not you can effectively perform on a day to day basis in the gym. So, starving yourself and doing high volumes of high effort training don't go hand in hand. Um, so, when you look at a well done bodybuilding diet for, say, the first third of it, um, the person's fine. It's not that hard. You know, you're 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 in a relatively moderate to low, like kind of like beach lean at most kind of uh, body fat percentage. Um, your your calories are still reasonably high, but then as you start to dip under sustainable levels of body fat, that's when you have to do unsustainable things with your nutrition. You have to diet on 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 calories that you're kind of constantly hungry, and it just gets progressively harder as you push to lower and lower and lower body fat percentages. You see more and more and more down regulation of your your energy expenditure and therefore you have to drop your calories to a point where most dietitians would be like nope that's I don't I don't approve um, yeah so I think I think like any sport uh, to when it becomes based on performance there is a divergence eventually uh, and temporarily uh, between what is considered healthy and what is considered good for performance um, with that said it's a small caveat that's not not related to your question you can't diverge from health too long in a sport, or athletes' careers get shortened. So, there is a there is a lot of things that come out of the necessity to diet for five, six, seven months and the stress it puts on the body. There's a necessary recovery period, and then you also need time to actually build muscle and change your physique. So, it's not uncommon in the uh, the, the bodybuilding scene for people to compete like every other year, uh, because there's just no time, especially in the natural bodybuilding scene where muscle growth occurs slower. So, there's all these interesting consequences. To the that the structure of the sport, uh, due to the demands of being on stage and what you have to look like, have resulted in that aren't weren't ever necessarily intentional. Like it's not like the promoters and the uh, organization presidents are like, yeah, I want to see a different. Like I don't want to see my world champion compete two years in a row. Of course, they want to see these epic battles of world champions go back and forth. And hey, seven years in a row, you know this guy won 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 the title. That does happen on the enhanced side in the pro ranks, you know, like for example, like Ronnie Coleman competed for a decade in a row, um, but you just don't see that as much on the natural side where the, uh, there's a challenge. It does happen, but those people who are world champions and compete back to back years and make progress or at least sustain the high performance, they're the outliers. They're the exceptions to the rule. That's part of the reason they are champions. They have a, a you know a lower natural body fat settling point. They recover quickly, and they have a propensity to grow muscle. So of course they they're they're selected to be competing at a high level. But for the the average plebeian who who diets and suffers from it, there there does need to be that necessary recovery period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And sorry, sorry, detracted from that. And so so the lot the one other thing is what do we, what are carbs doing in this? Because right. uh, we talked about protein, we talked about the, and then I I got you on a tangent about how long it takes for prep, but. What, what, it, what, why are we eating carbs? Why can we eat bread, or why should you be eating bread, rice, and other things like that?
1: Great question. Yeah, so, so, yeah, the, uh, the whole process of building muscle we talked about protein it's that net protein synthesis. When you diet, protein synthesis actually gets capped to some degree, and as you get really lean, muscle protein breakdown increases. So, the process of building muscle is the same as the process of maintaining muscle. That's why protein is important. Uh, right. Carbohydrates, overall calories in general, and to some degree, uh, dietary fat are is basically the fuel for everything you do in life. Um, carbohydrate. Uh, is essentially metabolized at a faster rate and can generate ATP, the currency that we use for for all processes in the body at a higher higher rate. So essentially, the higher the intensity of exercise, the more you go from a slow walk to something like sprinting or lifting the heaviest weight you can for 10 seconds, the more that fuel becomes dominant on faster energy systems. The fastest energy system is actually, okay, I have some stored ATP. And then also I can use creatine phosphate to, to recycle and generate more atp but anything longer than say uh, an all-out burst of say 10 seconds you start to rely on uh, carbohydrate fuel based systems the energy systems that are that are glycolytic in nature so with bodybuilding where there's high volume moderate repetition sets you don't typically do like singles or doubles or triple repetitions you're typically doing sets of five or more just to have the set last long enough to create a stimulus in that fatigue so when you're lifting the heaviest you can for say 6 to 15 repetitions for multiple sets Um, you can see how carbohydrate becomes an important energy system. And that's probably why you see very few like purely ketogenic diets. And when you do see pure ketogenic diets, it's almost every single time, I think I would say 10 out of 10 times, you see the individuals who follow those very low-carb diets also tend to use a lower volume, more moderate repetition, high effort approach rather than the higher volume approach. And they found through trial and error, like I'm not going to try to do a whole lot of volume when I'm not eating enough fuel. So, so carbohydrate is essentially uh, the fuel that that helps with bodybuilding training when there's a high, a high volume of moderate repetition, high effort work. Um, And then dietary fat has a lot of roles in the body. Um, You do need it just for not feeling crappy in general, because it it is, it is a fuel. It's part of your, your total energy intake. Um, But it also has to do with the transport of fat soluble vitamins. It also are, it acts as precursors to different hormones. Um, It tends to slow down digestion and has components in satiety, as do carbs and protein, of course, but uh, leave out any macronutrients and and it tends to change the time course of digestion, gastric emptying, and therefore the mechanical hunger responses. So a diet that is very low in carbs or very low in fat and low in energy or very low in protein, any of those can result in uh, it being harder to adhere to. Yeah. 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 So they they all have important roles. and, uh, you, you kind of, the reality though, is that to get into the kind of shape that bodybuilders do when they get on stage, you are robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, mm, yeah, <laughs> like, uh, I would say an optimal bodybuilding diet is a misnomer. An optimal bodybuilding diet would be your fat magically disappears and you never go into a calorie deficit. Right. Um, but you have to, so it's, it's a question of how do I mitigate muscle losses? How do I mitigate the psychological stress of, of, of manipulating my food so tightly? How do I mitigate the social stresses that that puts on my life as someone who, you know, no one gets paid to bodybuild. Um, So that's essentially what I do at at AUT. Um, My whole research focus is not only helping uh, strength athletes and physique athletes perform, but also to find ways to make their participation in their chosen sports sustainable. Um, Because in my anecdotal experience, uh, what people typically go through is there's a, there's a very high early out. Like people will, will compete in three to four or five seasons or competitions. And then it's just that they, they don't have a skill set uh, or they don't have the right mentorship uh, or the the standard practices really only that work for those outliers that I talked about uh, are disseminated downwards. And people are like, yeah, I just can't do this. This is crazy. you know. Um, and and I think that those are things that, that can change. Um, and that's basically why I'm around to have people decide to stop competing on their own terms if they want to stop competing or to keep competing on their own terms long term.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I like, uh, you know, just from a quick like view of the work that you've done and the work that you've published, Eric, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's looking at evidence-based ways, uh, recommendations for the natural bodybuilders, I saw there was a systematic review that did on nutrition and supplementation. So Mm -hmm. the work that you do is directly translating to this coaching and and athletics. And I I really do appreciate that you can take that standpoint as well within your podcast to kind of educate people en masse uh, that are interested in doing this uh, and doing bodybuilding and powerlifting. When it comes to that the non niche group of mm. bodybuilders and powerlifters now. So we, I'm kind of removing you from your expertise. And I apologize for that. But um, what would you suggest? Like, what are the biggest things that you think um, that you've learned or that you've seen in powerlifting and bodybuilding that can translate well into the non, you know, the average Joe that just wants to be a little bit healthier, or that wants to kind of look a little bit better when they're in front of the mirror. What do you think are like the biggest takeaways from what you know as a as a scientist?
1: To improve people's lifestyles or exercise. Yeah, no, I, I I um there there's a huge component of of people who follow my stuff and people who follow the bodybuilding and strength industry in general that are what I would describe as non-competitive. Or recreational bodybuilders or strength athletes who are—they yeah. want to get as strong as they can, but they're not interested in stepping on the platform. And they, they want to develop a, a muscular physique. Cause they think it's cool, but they don't really want to shave their body, cover it in fake tanner, and uh, you know, diet just to the point where they—they—they they, they hate their life. I don't know yeah. why they don't want to do that. I think that's—I <laughs> mean, it sounds so appealing, right? You know. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's like they just, I don't get it. But anyway, you know, different <laughs> folks, different strokes. But no, in all seriousness, I think that that's actually a, a really sizable portion of people who consume my content. That's something I'm acutely aware of, even if it's not something I'm necessarily studying on a day-to-day basis in the lab. Um, and I think there is kind of two messages here, is that it's, it's, it's a good idea to understand what are the ubiquitous things that bodybuilders and strength athletes do, um, because that's going to be what you need to do as well. But at the same time, it's also really important to understand the aspects of what they do that are not only wholly unnecessary for your goals, but actually counterproductive. So I don't generally recommend, as an example, going through bulking and cutting cycles like you will typically see in both powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, Powerlifting, like I mentioned earlier, there's the unlimited weight classes. That's the 84 kilo plus class in, in the women's category and the 120 kilo plus category for the men. Out of those two weight categories, everyone else typically, or the vast majority in strength sport, uh, they walk around slightly heavier than the top of their weight class. And in the last four weeks or so, they start to go on a, a very similar diet to what bodybuilders do. And then they actually manipulate water weight. So they're doing things like spitting in cuffs, getting in saunas, um, you know, going on, this is the much better option, I would say, a low fiber, low uh, gut volume diet. So just foods that weigh more, but don't, and have a lot of, weigh less and have a lot of calories, just so the total you know gut weight is less so they're doing a lot of things that are not sustainable not healthy to make weight on game day and on the flip side of it you have bodybuilders who have to recover from the 6 month phase where they tank their hormones just got really really focused on food and they're more interested in being a chef than they are lifting weights by the end of their their 6 month diet that's you don't want to get that lean it's not sustainable if you're a recreational bodybuilder typically what you want to do is find the 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 best or quote unquote most aesthetic uh, physique that you can walk around at without stress, which is going to be invariably far less lean, but still good. You know, So finding kind of the lower limit of what's sustainable is very different than pushing past what's sustainable, needing to recover from it, regain muscle, and then purposely trying to gain muscle in an aggressive way before you having to diet down again. So the average person who's interested in being strong or, or muscular, I generally think of like taking those peaks and valleys and just making them much more similar. So there's a term that's been around for over a decade now called gain-taining. Uh, which is just the idea of, you know, eating roughly around what you need to maintain weight, maybe slightly more um, so that you're slowly gaining weight and you're seeing, you know, you're eating enough to perform well in the gym. And then every once in a while, deciding to do a relatively mild cut to where you get your body fat down to something you're comfortable with. Um, And that sacrifices very little of the the optimality of, of gaining muscle mass. But the benefit is you don't have to go through these cyclical phases of cutting and bulking and cutting and bulking, which is something that is, a direct consequence of the competitive nature of strength and physique sport. So I generally don't recommend these large aggressive phases of, of going into large calorie surplus, large calorie deficit, like you see in the, on the competitive side. Sometimes like I remember myself um, when I was a uh, early twenties guy getting into lifting, I just really struggled to eat enough. So it felt like I was bulking, but if you look at my rate of weight gain, it wasn't that high. So sometimes, you know, folks who have kind of like a normal, more thinner physique, they might need to really kind of force feed to, Uh, to kind of acclimate to to what's needed to eat enough. But when you look at the actual numbers, the output, it really shouldn't be like, I'm gaining two pounds a week, bro. Like that's not a good idea. You typically just (laughs) gain a lot of body fat. So that's one difference, for example.
0: Another example you could use similar to bodybuilding. So if you're trying to look good, it would be like if you want to be better at soccer or you want to be better at basketball, what are the best ways to do that? You're probably going to take some things from the professionals that are doing it because they're the best at it. Um, but obviously, you're not going to have the, the Mamba mentality where you're going to be going into the gym for, you know, 100%. 10 hours a day. It's just not possible. So you have to kind of take the the good and the bad and, and realize what's realistic and acceptable
1: to do on a day to day basis for, for an everyday person. And that's much easier said than done. I think yeah. the, the difficult thing too is that in the, the bodybuilding and strength athlete community, the mamba mentality is the closest thing we have to an all power, powerful God that we, we all equally pray to. Like you yeah. can have disagreements on volume or carbohydrates or, or prep length or whether you're natural or I'm not, but everybody prays the masochism, you know, like, like crushing mm-hmm. yourself and, and being able to, to, to have, have that rise and grind mentality is it's critical in sport which is why you'll hear different iterations of it, like basketball, Kobe, mama mentality, um, and uh, you know, being hardcore is kind of the quote-unquote term that you see in the strength bodybuilding community. It's ubiquitous across sport, but it's even more required in bodybuilding because it's not just the training that is difficult. It's the 24-7 reality that you have to control your nutrition intake while dieting, and you have to get to a very, very uncomfortable place. Um, most athletes from any background who compete in competitive bodybuilding will tell you that it's not even the same kind of hard. It's this very different kind of challenge to get really, really lean that requires a 24-7 discipline that can become quite pathological. And yeah. uh, it, it can really chew you up and spit you out on the other side if you're, if you're not prepared for it and you don't know how to deal with the transition back to normal life. Um, so there's a reason why it is the kind of the, the cornerstone of the bodybuilding community. But that is something that shouldn't even be necessary and is actually counterproductive if you're not trying to get incredibly lean. like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, I think it's, it, there are some issues there. It's quite problematic that like you look at someone who is shredded and if that's the ideal physique, you can never get to it if you're a recreational or you can get some photos, but then you have to deal with all the things those competitive bodybuilders deal with. So I think um, there are some, they're almost on different scales. Like for example, if you love to play basketball and you watch, uh, you know, your basketball, you know, the difference is okay. They're taller, they can dunk and they have a better free throw percentage than I do. Um, Sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It depends on the position, right? Let's say you're making 60%. They're making 80%. They're on the same scale. They're just better at you than you. Right. But um, the, like, if you're comparing, like, for example, ripped versus shredded, they feel like Mm -hmm. they're on the same scale. But the difference between, you know, you playing high school basketball and a professional is just, you know, genetics and, and more hard work and the right environment and everything lining up. But this is something you could achieve, but you should not, you know? So it's, it's kind of a, a difficult message to get across to people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think of a interview. There was an interview with a guy named Brian Scalabrini. He's from Boston. He used to play NBA. He was in the NBA. They call him the White Mamba jokingly because he he was he was a, a role player. And he said, "I'm much closer to LeBron James than any of you like any non NBA players closer to me." Mm. And I think that kind of rings true with what you're saying here. Is like looking at these uh, shredded individuals, you know, that are that are so lean that it's kind of unattainable. By setting that standard, it can really screw people up because that's what they're—that's their end goal that they've kind of set for themselves because they think it's—it's it's attainable. And I think that can be really detrimental to a lot of people. And and that kind of leads me into the next kind of topic, Eric. And I think that you have a really good—you'd um, be the person to talk to about this because you are, in a way, you're an influencer. Um, you're a scientist first and foremost, but you're also a fitness influencer. How does this kind of play out online? I know there's a lot of issues with mm. uh, fitness influencers and how they perceive or you know portray themselves and what's accessible and what's what's attainable. So, what is obtainable? What do you think is an appropriate body type? Because there's so many conversations about what's a good body type to achieve, uh, to, to to look to achieve, uh, and what's not accessible.
1: So, what what do you think? So yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you're happy to talk to me for the next four hours. um, (laughs) No, but in all seriousness, this has always been a part of bodybuilding. Like, even if we go all the way back to the 1900s, you have uh, Eugen Sandow, the actual Sandow trophy that's awarded at the Mr. Olympia uh, competition. He was the first, like, oh my God, muscular, like, it it totally changed people's perspective back then. And he's actually called, uh, you know, the the father of modern bodybuilding, Eugen Sandow, because he had this the muscular physique that, that you could see on Instagram today if they just had social media back in 1910 or whatever. Um, <laughs> and um, there was marketing then. You know, he used his physique to sell hot cocoa, for God's sake. Um, and the message was, you can look like this too if you just follow my techniques and it will get you a attractive, significant other and success in life. Um, that, I think, is an, that, that's the, in, the inherent problem. Um, and you don't have to do that when you're a fitness influencer. Like um, yeah. I am someone on Instagram and I'm primarily linking out to podcasts, scientific papers and, you know, courses and stuff that are based on that, on that work. I'm not leveraging my physique outside of the context of competitive physique sport to push other things. You might see my ripped physique on a bodybuilding podcast, but it's a podcast yeah. about getting a ripped physique. So it's, <laughs> you know, yeah, but that's you're not selling a product that will guarantee what you what you have, right? Exactly, but that is basically a huge component to what the fitness, nutrition, and supplement industry is. So that in and of itself is an issue, um, mm-hmm. because even though the intention is maybe just to sell you whey protein, there's there's a subtext that people pretend they don't understand. It is kind of furthering this this idea, and then we have good old social media that comes around and it acts essentially as an amplifier of that, and it puts reward mechanisms in place. To where even people who are trying to do it right in the quote-unquote fitness industry, it's really hard. As you're someone, let's say you're 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 an exercise science student in college, and you're trying to start your personal training business, right? And you also compete, or you lift weights, and you've got a good physique. Uh, you can make it better with with just turning the structure up on, on, on your Instagram thing. Uh, you you can you can put your your picture next to your your uh you know your your personal training sales, and you know that that picture will get ten times the number of likes and engagement. As a picture that's just a professional-looking you and a clipboard with a uh, you know a polo and a few studies that, that you think highlight key important pieces, um, yeah. I have seen it myself. You know, I, I hit the hundred k follower mark during my last contest season, posting pictures of myself even in a bodybuilding context. Um, so the reward mechanisms in place make it very difficult for someone to feel like they can't play the game, but the yeah. game furthers these these, these issues. So mm. I think. Um, I think you ultimately do have to draw a line in the sand and say like, what are my values? What am I comfortable with? Um, and if you are a scientist, I think, you know, truth and, 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 and having some kind of benevolent effect on, on the society that you're furthering knowledge for ostensibly should be the call of any scientist in my opinion. Um, <laughs> on paper. Yes. <laughs> yeah. At least, especially in like applied fields, like, you know, yeah, like, like absolutely, mine. So, absolutely. so if I, I, I have to hold on to that, if I'm going to be in, in, in the public eye and yeah, you know, the interesting thing, though, is that there is a whole market for evidence-based fitness and nutrition and being honest about this stuff because it was so dominated by all the stuff we just talked about that's an issue that it's almost like like counterculture and cool to, to talk about science, uh, to talk about the realities of getting lean, to talk about sustainability because it is so not often heard. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, I, I my, the last thing I want to do is get rid of Instagram or get rid of social media. For all the problems it has, it gives me the ability to self-start a platform. You know, anybody can be a platform now. So while I am frustrated at the fact that if you go online and start Googling, you're going to get exposed to all kinds of crap, good and bad. I'm also happy that they can come across me mm-hmm. or, or, or someone else who does a good job. So it's it's, it's, it's a tough thing, man.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? I do like the the thought that it's kind of in vogue right now, or it seems like it is, to be interested in science-based physical activity and physical exercise, like learning more about what's scientifically proven or empirically driven. That's really interesting to me. It's not something that you see a lot in other fields, is what I'll say, is, you know, people will discredit science quickly mm-hmm. uh, and not find it actually very interesting to follow the people that are actually doing the science on it. One thing I'm curious about, Eric, there's there's a lot of physical activity research in psychology in kinetics, in in tons of areas, measuring physical activity and how someone is physically fit. Mm. I think it's a really unique uh, task, to say the least. Like, it's very difficult to do. How do you do it within the research that you do? And then how do you see it being done in other
1: literatures? Because I have different perspectives that I could talk about. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's um, a huge part of it comes down to scalability and what is the target population that you're trying to study and hopefully provide guidance for. So, uh, sports science looks very different to physical activity and nutrition, even though some of the variables ostensibly are the same, you know? Mm. So for example, um, BMI gets a, gets a pretty bad rap body mass index, because it's just a function of height and weight. And it doesn't take into account, um, ethnic differences. It doesn't take into account, uh, whether someone's athletic, it doesn't take into account people who don't fall within the bell curve of certain body types. So I don't really like to use BMI when I've got ten lifters because you know all of them are going to be overweight. Like when I'm in stage condition at 180 pounds at five percent body fat, my BMI is slightly in the overweight category. So yeah. for me, not very useful. However, if I wanted to do a population-wide study looking at relationships in uh, you know a certain segment of the population of which only ten percent of them even lift weights anyway, um, mm-hmm. it's actually quite a useful metric, despite its flaws. You know, because right. we have that signal to noise with such a large end, such a large sample. Yeah. Um, similarly, if we want to measure, you know, force output and strength, and let's say we take an elderly population, we want to know uh, is is quad strength, or or let's let's say just overall body strength related to frequency of falls, which we know is mm-hmm. related to uh, you know the time point of, of death and also quality of life. So if I am a um, if I'm, re- I'm a sarcopenia researcher, osteopenia researcher, I'm looking at elderly and health. I'm going to need to do something that is portable, that I can take to, uh, the actual homes of, 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 the participants in my study that is low skill and very low risk. So yeah. they might be, uh, you know, having like a hand grip dynamometer to yeah, measure okay. strength, you know, mm-hmm. however, if I want to tell a bunch of power what's the best way to increase their performance. And I show them a study of hand grip dynamometry, they're going to go, yeah, maybe, but why didn't you just have them do a one rep max on, on squat bench and deadlift? Wouldn't that be yeah. far more applicable? <laughs> um, yeah. But even that can be challenging. So, so for example, um, right now I have a PhD student of mine, great guy, his name is Kedrick Kwan. And uh, he came from Malaysia to New Zealand. And he's specifically looking at the different weight cutting strategies that power lifters do to make weight. And we talked about like sauna usage and, and spitting in a cup and all the crazy crap that uh, you probably saw your, your high school wrestlers, friends when you were a teenager do. Um, we've got a protocol where individuals use the sauna at different times, either the night prior or the morning of, and then we test their strength immediately after having used the sauna and then after a rehydration period two hours later. If we were to ask a bunch of powerlifters to come in dehydrate themselves and then do a squat, bench, and deadlift one rep max and then do it again two hours later so we can tell how it's affected, they'd go, no thanks, Like that's, that's really, really hard. I only do that two or three times a year, and you're asking me to do it twice. Um, so, okay, w- where's the middle ground there? So, for example, now we have what's called a mid-thigh pull which is basically if you were to do a deadlift, you'd take a barbell off the ground and you lock it all the way out. If, that, if there was an immovable object, at the midpoint of your thighs, that you couldn't pull that past that point, the mid thigh, pulling there without being able to move it, it's a non-dynamic action. So it's not that challenging. You're basically just pulling on a, mov- a movable uh, object as hard as you can, but it has a really high correlation with like squat and deadlift strength. So it's a nice stand-in. that's not too fatiguing. that gets us a really good uh, measurement of force output that's relevant to the sport. And uh, you basically have someone stand on a, a plate with the chain attached to a load cell with the bar. Now It's actually a strain gauge. And then it measures how much force output is, you're, you're pulling on it. Yep. Um, and then in addition to that, we have what's called a plyometric push-up. So they're just pushing themselves as hard as they can. And their hands are on what's called a force plate, which is just kind of like a really, really fancy scale. It's got load cells in it. and We can measure uh, you know, force production in Newtons. And they do that. And that's a decent proxy for the bench press, if you will. Or just to you know force production at a different speed, and then also a jump on that force plate. So jump a couple times, do a forceful push up, pull on a movable object. Now I've got power lifters on board, but they'll also look at that result and go, "That's relevant." So that's mm. all very different to how you know that 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 sarcopenia researcher might do it in a large population. Yeah, and they, I'm sure they would be really curious to see that biofeedback as well. Yes, and that that's something that is really important whenever you're um, doing research. The something that you, you would try to do whenever it's possible, if it's not, you know, impossible due to need, need, needing to blind the subjects or something like that, is for your participants to come in and actually get a benefit from participating, yeah. um, not because it's, it's them. It's one thing that's nice to say, hey, you know, in a year and a half, when we finally get this to peer review and we publish it, it might pos- possibly impact your, your performance um, you know, at the, at the, at the the sport level, but it's much better to say, Hey, like you just learned when you not necessarily the mean average of the study should get in the sauna and how it'll affect your performance on these three movements over this time course. Now the person's going, Oh shit, I I could do your study and it might help me actually make weight for nationals in in, in seven weeks or something like that.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: so that's the ideal again, not always possible, but, um, whenever you can, uh, you, you try to really make a participant, get, get the benefits of participating. Um, Mm -hmm. in in your research so absolutely yeah you you can't
0: always just give them a couple a couple dollars and and hope that that'll get you enough participants it doesn't usually work that way it's easier to drive them by having them benefit in some way that they actually really want right And I see that with your work that makes a lot of sense I'm thinking of general population Mm -hmm. what do you think we talked about BMIs you know it's strength in numbers more or less right obviously if you could get like It's more feasible to just ask someone to what their weight and what their height is to calculate BMI versus, you know, doing a body fat composition or something like that, where Mm -hmm. you're doing a DEXA scan or something like that. Right. But when it comes to psychology, I know a lot of physical activity researchers will use uh, step counts. Yep. And is, is that to you? I've always had kind of issues with that because I know that there's a lot of people, you know, I'm not sure what the percentages are, but there's a lot of people that do go to the gym, you know, and don't just do cardio to get their exercise. So is it a metric that is the best that we can use right now for overall physical activity in the general population? Or do you think that there's something that could be done within that literature that could better address it in a feasible way?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. The, um, the step count trackers are getting better and better all the time, and that's a very interesting thing as well. So the like, for example, um, I had a uh, I had a tracking system that I was using for a while, and it was pretty good on picking up like even if I was on a treadmill or if I was on a bike or me walking around the gym. And so like when I'd have a workout, I would get even though I'm lifting weights, it would it would give me a fair number of steps added, and that's like you said, it's a gross metric. It's not telling me how heavy did I lift or what were the benefits I got from lifting weights by any means. But I think this is more of a case of properly applying the information that step count tells you. Um, So for example, there was a meta-analysis that came out not too long ago that specifically looked at not only physical activity, but also sedentariness as independent factors. And that's actually a really important thing we need to think about uh, these days is that there's an effect of being sedentary. And then there's an effective exercise, and you can actually be someone who vigorously exercises, but is sedentary outside of that, and that could have some impacts. Um, so you're, this you're, is, you're describing me right now. This is exactly what a grad student life is. If you're absolutely, out. yeah. So, so like <laughs> online coaching is a huge thing these days. So you get someone who's a fitness expert. Ninety-nine percent of fitness experts work out, and the one percent pretend they do. Um, you know, and like, so for example, I train five days a week for like roughly 90 minutes. However, I spend the, the rest of my time writing papers, editing my students' work, answering emails and doing podcasts like this. So if I don't go on intentional walks, I'm clocking an average of 4,000 steps a day, which is decent, but it's not good. Like if we look at some of the population level data, um, we start to see... Uh, at least the the amelioration of negative metabolic effects and higher correlations or, or no negative correlation or odds ratios with uh, you know lower quality of life or or, or all cause mortality once you get around like seven thousand steps, so okay. I've got to walk if I want if I want to get that even though I train at a really high level so anyway going back to that meta analysis um, they they had a number of different assessments where they looked at um, people who spent who met the guidelines for intense vigorous activity um, so high high amounts of intense, to moderate to vigorous activity, moderate amounts of uh, moderate to vigorous activity and low amounts of moderate to vigorous activity. And then on a separate scale, they had people who were um, very sedentary, moderately sedentary or not. And And they found that obviously people who exercised a lot, if they were sedentary, it wasn't as bad as being sedentary and not exercising, but they did have some independent effects. Um, so it's this this interesting thing where I think Anytime we try to get like this one metric that tells us everything, like step count for physical activity, we lose some of that uh, that detail. You know, so we lose some granularity. We we can't assume that just because someone exercises all the time that they can't also be sedentary. Just like we can't assume that someone who is active uh, is someone who exercises. And there are independent effects of both. So yeah, it's tools are only as good as, as the, the interpreter who uses them, I think. Um, and the interpretation should be specific to the, the, the type of research you're putting out, which is why a lot of the times, like most of the critique of science communication is leveled at media, right? Where they'll, they'll take a sound bite, And sometimes it's you know, malicious, like I just want a, a story and I don't give a crap about you know how, how crappy the study was or, or how good the study was, but I took one little piece out of it and played telephone with it. But I think a lot of the times it is just that you have someone who is not familiar with the tool um, and is not familiar with with the scope of the study and then reaches outside of it and and, and says something that's too too broad reaching in nature. So as a total aside, I think it's more and more important these days for, for scientists themselves to do maybe that first line of science communication, because if it goes from study, which tends to be very jargoned in nature and behind some paywalls, typically just an abstract, and then it goes to journalist or blogger, that's where you're going to more likely have an issue. However, if the bloggers are then interacting with you talking about your research, they're much much less likely to get it wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, I mean, really, in, in essence, that's why I do, we started this podcast is is, is because of the, the lack of access that individuals can get and the lack of accessibility, which mm-hmm. I really like that you do that as well um, with your podcast. And and I, I just think it's, it's something that takes a lot of work. And that's why a lot of scientists don't do it. They'll, you know, they'll talk to their niche group. And then if anybody wants to talk about it, well, good luck interpreting
1: it. And they're also not trained. I think that that's a tough one. It's um... true. It's, Absolutely. E- it's easy for me, someone who's relatively extroverted and who was a personal trainer and a, uh, a, an instructor in a personal training college before I got into academia. So I developed the ability to communicate um, and I have a natural tendency to be a, a pretty good speaker. Um, it's easy for me with those skills that I learned outside of academia to look at academics and go, well, why don't you get on podcasts? When they're like, because I'm a terrible speaker, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) I'm petrified of talking. people. (laughs) I have social anxiety. I'm really comfortable doing what I do. I've been trained for 10 years to do that. And now you're telling me after finally feeling like an expert and, you know, being, you know, treated like an outcast. And now I'm seen as an expert in my field. Now I need to go do something I'm terrible at. Mm -hmm. How about no? You know, yeah. So, yeah.
0: and possibly have to deal with people that aren't educated on that topic,
1: refuting your opinions
0: right? like that. That also is a big part of, of what I, I assume scares a lot
1: of scientists having to defend their research. Yeah. And it's a very different process of dealing with a reviewer, too, than it is <laughs> dealing with 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 a Karen online who thinks she's an expert in nutrition, you know, mm-hmm. and especially your work, Eric, too, because, you know, physical
0: fitness and nutrition are just those are the most toxic kind of groups to be talking online with. Yeah, they are. (laughs) There's a lot of polarized camps on online for that.
1: Yeah. And I tell you what, that is um, that's by far one of the most challenging things for any any scientist who wants to get out there is the the scientist generally plays by the rules of, oh, you're misinformed on this. If I give you the highest quality data, your opinion will start to reflect mine or at least be on the same page. But if you have someone who is not even operating within the same rule set of rational skepticism, the response to the meta-analysis might be, um, you know, that this is just part of the the, the medical science conspiracy to, uh, you know, like like they are sometimes anti-science. So how do you use Absolutely. science to convince them of something? You can't. So you have to have yeah. other skills. Like you have to have some emotional intelligence. You have to be able to ask them questions. Um, you have to be willing to like that's you know going back to what can the general public learn from bodybuilders? There's some interesting things that can happen. Like uh, I've had some people who have done some mental gymnastics to hold on to a belief, but I know I planted a seed. Like, so for example, someone, mm. you know, comes to me and uh, you know, I, they, they, they say like, you know, carbohydrates are, are the way that people get fat. They, they think of the, the insulin model of obesity that, okay, you eat carbs, insulin goes up, insulin's a fat storage hormone. Therefore obesity and fat storage is all driven by carbohydrate And it's independent of energy balance. So if you eat a high carb, you know, low protein, low fat diet, even though you're an energy deficit, you're just going to gain body fat and you're going to get diabetes and you're going to die. Um, And uh, the only way to get lean is by restricting carbohydrates. So I don't need to necessarily try to refute the physiology or or cite a paper by Kevin Hall or something like that. I can go, you know, that's interesting because, you know, like when I compete in bodybuilding, here's a picture of me, my carbohydrates get low, but I'm still consuming around 150 grams a day. So what what do you think is going on there? so it is they're faced with an impossibility so then yeah. they either have to you know go to oh you're you're maybe you're taking you know drugs uh, or maybe you're <laughs> you're a genetic outlier and then i go well oh here's you know five other clients 10 other clients 100 other clients here's you know 30 years of competitive bodybuilders uh, oh here's the drug tested side so they eventually they have to shift the goalpost and in an academic debate yeah. shifting the goalpost is like i'm going to get mad at you now you've 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 broken the rules but in reality shifting a goalpost actually requires them compromising on their worldview to some extent so that they're they're limiting the amount that their worldview is, is, is narrating reality. Yes. So I think that's something that you have to be comfortable with is not trying to win online, but planting a seed. And when you do get a goalpost shift, seeing that as a win, even though they are being pedantic and annoying, now they can't walk around and say that, Anyone who eats carbs is going to get fat. They can say, well, you know, if you're lifting weights and you have good genetics, and uh, in these cases, if you're young, then yeah, that's a big change, you know? <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, a- a- any tangible shift in someone's perspective, I guess, can definitely be a win, depending on, you know, you can't take things too personally, I guess, is the big thing too online, right? You don't know who these people are, and and you don't know how much impact you might actually have on their worldview, which is actually quite, I guess, a good thing if you take it that way.
1: Absolutely. And another thing to think about is that um, no one likes to feel stupid in front of everyone. Yeah. So like, what what am I really going to expect? You know, when I have over 100,000 followers on Instagram, someone comes on there and challenges me, you know, I make a comment, it's got 50 likes. So I know if I respond to this person, they're going to feel like they're standing in a room full of my, like attacking a cult leader with all his followers, like, yeah, throwing just shit. Just standing there watching. <laughs> yeah, of <laughs> yeah. course they're going to dig their heels in. So sometimes yeah. it makes a lot more sense to be as as minimally combative as possible. Um, if if you can, you know, DM them. Of course, it gets to a certain point where the volume of that becomes untenable. If you're successful mm. as a science communicator and you get a lot of followers, yeah. Um, but there has certainly been times, at least when I'm dealing with other people who have large followings, and I know the ripples of that conversation can have you know, very far reaching effects so of, you know, if someone comes at me and they are also someone who is a quote unquote influencer, am I going to get into a big battle with them online where they're defending their, their beliefs in front of their followers? And they think I'm doing the same. Of course not. That's not going to go anywhere productive. Um, yeah. what I might do is drop them a DM mm-hmm. and say, Hey, just, uh, figured we, we could talk about this without the, 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 the environment that, that's so chaotic around us, like ask okay. questions and, and you would be surprised the success rate you can get there if you come from mm-hmm. it with a emotionally intelligent, respectful um, position that is not observed by the collective followers of two, you know, yeah. influencer, you know, people. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's something that you have to have patience to do. And you also have to not get sucked into kind of that, um, that emotional reaction.
0: Yeah, that kind of mudslinging going on. I, I think that I think that rings true in a lot of senses, Eric. Like you're talking about, you know, two influencers. You, you wouldn't want to call somebody out during a meeting where they're giving a presentation if you they think they're wrong. You wouldn't want to call your aunt out in front of everybody in the in front of the family if, if you think they said something incorrect. Right. There's better ways to approach this as an individual to save face for a lot of people. Right. And I think self-esteem and self-efficacy are things that I'm, I'm also interested in when it comes to human relationships and, and self-esteem. When you lose it, a lot of crazy things can happen and a lot of things can be said. Um, And I think that, you know, I think it rings true for a lot of relationships, a lot of situations, and it's just good advice in general.
1: Yeah. You don't want to set up an environment where the only outs for someone are to completely buy into your worldview or have to do mental gymnastics and say some, some, some horrible shit, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, and it, sometimes it does devolve into that kind of situation and you're just trying to basically, if we really are trying to communicate and help people learn. That is our goal, right? Is not to kind of create that uh, competitive environment. And I think that what you've done with your work, I must say, is quite good. And uh, it, it kind of lends into, you know, letting people learn more on their own without kind of shoving it in their face and telling them they're wrong. I, I really do appreciate the content that you put out for that reason.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, a big, I think, You mentioned earlier how it's in vogue for um, people to take a scientific approach to fitness and nutrition. I think a really important thing for anyone who is uh, involved in that, who's listening or who wants to promote that, is that you don't just want to constantly correct scientific inaccuracies or put out scientific information. That game of whack-a-mole never ends, which I Mm. I guess is great from a content production uh, perspective. (laughs) (laughs) However, um, it... Your, your followers will learn a collection of facts and a collection of what not to do, but they won't necessarily learn critical thinking skills unless you give them ins- some insight into why you're busting these myths or why you're promoting these things. So I think it's really important to try to build the underlying engine, uh, which is which is a lot of the time I spend online and on podcast is not just reciting facts about muscle protein synthesis or yeah. you know uh, effort levels in, in resistance training or volume or what have you. Um, I also try to embed an understanding of of how I got there and why and what are some of the issues with some of the other ideas um, so Mm -hmm. that people can hopefully have a little larger shield the next time something comes across that is inaccurate at best and harmful at worst. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, to touch on just, you know, the work that you do and, and similar to my work as well. Everybody's going to have anecdotes that are going to lead them to whatever conclusions they have. That's just the generally how the general population sees things, right? If, if you have friends or family or you're in contact with people that have experiences that you genuinely believe and trust and love these individuals, you going bi- to it's going to bias the way you see the world, right? And sometimes uh, one study will not shift your worldview completely, right? So we're working off of all these biases that everybody has and these anecdotes that they're running off of. And sometimes using anecdotes can can be good in what we do. Like it can it can connect with other people, but also it it kind of can backfire in a sense where you know just because a science article that you published you know says increase your rep max or your reps to this and and eat this doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody. And we're not proposing that, but it's tough to kind of separate that as a scientist uh, science communicator because we are saying on average this is what's going on.
1: That's very well said, and I think um, I think it's just really important. Like uh, a lot of the fitness nutrition space is modeling itself after uh, the medical space where they have, you know, evidence-based medicine, so EBM and evidence-based medicine has three equal stool legs, the individual uh, and the client preferences, um, your experience as a practitioner. And then finally, and equally importantly to the other three, the scientific evidence. Um, and on top of that, a, in, in human research, the, the hierarchy of evidence the bottom is anecdotes and observations. They're on the hierarchy, and I think sometimes you have the very, very strict experimentalists um, who are also, you know, frustrated and triggered <laughs> online with, with with some of the the anecdotes as a proxy for all evidence. They basically decide, you know, what I'm going to just chop the two legs of the stool off and chop the you know the bottom fifth of this hierarchy of evidence off, and that's how I'm going to operate. You know, show me the studies, or didn't it didn't happen? And I don't think that that often goes well. Um, I think that that leads you to be relatively out of touch with reality. Um, and it can cause issues because, you know, one thing I will often say, because, you know, sports science interacts with sport a lot. A saying in sport is that success leaves clues, you know, and that's also a saying in business. It's like, you know, you, to some degree, modeling what, what successful people do is not always a bad idea. Sometimes they are the outlier and they, they're the only one who will succeed with that. But I think to help people understand the value of anecdotes when there is something that people do who have been successful, at the very least, you know that that hasn't prevented them from being successful, so it can't be completely wrong. But we can't assume that that is therefore optimal or the best way or the only way. So I, um, I normally do bring anecdotes into conversations because that's kind of the inverse of what I said earlier. Like I am dealing with this person who who's you know promoting the insulin-based model of of, uh, of obesity, and I go, well, if that was true, how did these people get lean? Right. So we know, we know at the very least that can't be true in all cases, or they couldn't exist. Right. And so the inverse of that is to say, look, okay, you want to train like, you know, Ronnie Coleman, Mr. Mr. Olympia. Oh, that's, that that probably won't be the barrier to you succeeding. But what about this other Olympian who trained differently? And they go, oh, okay, I guess there's more than one way to do it. And now all of a sudden yeah. I've, 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 you know, got my foot in the door. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And now they might start reassessing what they can do. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it just makes so much sense to me. I'll leave it to you. Tell, tell our view, tell our viewers a little bit about what you do on Iron Culture, because I love listening to it. I'd love for them to check it out as well. Um, you can explain it better than I could in, in a short recap. So tell us what you do and and why people might
1: be wanting to tune in. Yeah. So thank you so much. So Iron Culture is my podcast with my colleague, Omar Isaf. Uh, and Omar Isaf has been uh, in the YouTube game for a long time. So he first started in 09, And he has essentially been a like a strength journalist and, and a science communicator for uh, primarily the non-competitive and recreational lifter. And he's been always really good at getting people who, you know, kind of like what you're doing, getting people who are on the ground, doing the research or people who are competing and active in it and and exposing them and kind of platforming people to get good information out to his viewers. And uh, we started Iron Culture as a duo podcast uh, in 2019. And our tagline is history, science, and culture. So we're essentially trying to explore everything that has to do with lifting. So we have had strength historians on, so basically uh, sport history professors who focus on the history of the Iron Game, which, as you probably could tell from the first part of this podcast, I, I, I think it's pretty cool. And I'm a bit yeah. of an amateur, but I, I don't have a you know a PhD in history or anything like that, of course. So it's been great to have them on. Um, because of my connections in sports science uh, and uh, Omar's connections in, in the... Uh, the YouTube space, we're able to get like your experts expert on, and we're also able to get some very high-level athletes on. So we've had, you know, yeah. the best powerlifters, the best bodybuilders. We've had, you know, like Chris Bumstead on, who is, you know, uh one of one of the like Mr. Olympia for the uh the classic division. Uh we have had Brian Whitaker on, who is one of the most decorated natural bodybuilding champions. We've had Taylor Atwood on, who I mentioned earlier, who's the best by coefficient uh, powerlifter in the world at the moment. We've had heads of natural bodybuilding organizations. And then we've had folks like you know Brad Schoenfeld, who's the most published scientific author in the space of the mechanisms of hypertrophy. And we're now, geez, we're, we're over 100 episodes deep. And it's just yeah, a, a great thing to tune into if you want to learn about the history, science and the culture. And uh, Omar and I also are very, uh, let's say we're pretty relaxed with how we approach things and we, we both like <laughs> to have bits. So just, just make sure mm-hmm. your sarcasm meter is, 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 is turned up to be sensitive enough to get what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun. And we have guests on, on more than half the episodes, but sometimes it's just him and I doing a deep dive on a topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, honestly, uh, you guys do a great job and yeah, thanks for the work that you do, Derek. I, I really do appreciate it. And it was awesome getting to to talk to you today and learn more about bodybuilding, powerlifting, and just everything that, you know, <laughs> everything that you can bring to the table. There was so much more, but, uh, thanks again for coming on. That's no, a true honor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. That will wrap up this episode for brain buzz podcast if you enjoyed this episode and you're still sticking around to the end thank you i appreciate you making it out this far uh you clearly enjoyed the episode so what are you doing not liking our instagram or our twitter page at brain buzz pod i want to hear from you i'm sure a lot of you can agree that this year has been a different year it's been a lonely year a lot of online access and i haven't really been able to see guests In person, which I really do miss, but we're moving into this weird in person virtual campus lifestyle for my last year of my PhD, and I'm just, I'm missing social contact. So please do send me a message if you're liking the episodes at all. Even if you're not liking them, give me a little bit of hate mail. It could serve maybe as a rage and fueled injection to my workouts after listening to this episode. Who knows? Um, If you're a longtime fan and you're curious about what Kyle's been up to, he is still. In parental leave, he's, he's prepping for a course that he's going to be teaching. So I am super proud of him, super happy for him and his family, uh, and all the best to them as they are managing a little baby boy and trying to figure out what the hell they're doing. <laughs> and lastly, if you're interested in working with Rainbuzz, we are looking for some team members to help with social media engagement and other tasks related to science communication and knowledge translation. So if you like what we do and you want to be a part of the team, please do send us an email at brainbuzzpod at gmail.com. Love to hear it. Cheers for listening. Take it easy.